Welcome to the With Ingram series of podcasts. I'm Philip Ingram, this is episode six, and today I'm talking to Mick O'Connell, who's a VP with the NEC Corporation, and we're talking about biometric data, facial recognition, and so much more. Warning, you may actually learn something. Mick, can you tell us a little bit about your position in the NEC, in NEC and um, what NEC are doing and, and doing here? Yeah, thank you. So, NEC are a global leader in the use of biometrics and high-end security technologies for bringing about you know, social improvement, social good, and particularly delivering on some of those capabilities out into law enforcement communities uh, and national security. So what do we mean by that? It's about the use of high-end biometric technology. It's about the use of AI. It's about the use of um, high-processing computers um, and the ability to bring some of these um, modern platforms together to improve you know, both a multi-sensory environment for law enforcement so that you can have strong and safe cities in some of these more modern contexts. Um, some parts of the community would say that we're enabling um, better policing because of the information, the big data that we can collect. Others would say that all this technology is doing is it's leading to a police state and interfering with um, people's right to privacy. Um, where do we get the balance? I think that's a really good question, where do we get the balance? And it's a concern for ourselves both in the technology houses as much as it is um, within the privacy advocates. And I think there is a balance to be struck there. I think one of the difficulties that we've had though is that there's been a, a race to the top with regard to the technologies. So everyone's rushing, rushing to use some really sophisticated technologies, some of which are maybe perceived as being quite intrusive. But then there's been uh, not necessarily a race to the bottom, but there's been a languishing behind with regard to the evolution in the education of our societies and our uh, policy makers with regard to the use of these technologies, which has led to a vacuum in understanding, a vacuum in governance and policy frameworks that are enablers to the use of the technology in a, an appropriate, lawful and proportionate way. So some of the work that we're doing within um, the NEC group, as an example, is very much through our digital trust and others, is trying to make sure that potential customers or users of the technology, first of all, only use the technology if, if it has a particular value to resolving a security question when it's in a, a security setting, um, that they understand their roles and responsibilities in the use of that technology in the absence of there being a policy framework there. On the other channel, we're very much lobbying um, together with others um, to try and bring about a complementary regulatory environment that educates and protects citizens' rights and privacy um, so that we can all have confidence and trust that technology that's being used is being used for the right purpose and we can have confidence in it and we know when it's being used. Obviously there are some uh, regulatory requirements or law enforcement requirements where technology needs to be used which contravenes privacy situations, but, but that's in a, you know, in, a, in a more extreme regulated setting. But some of the routine use of this um, needs to be improved, and we, we echo the work that's been done there. And, and how important is it that the international community comes together in events like this to be able to discuss these issues and gain an understanding between what are huge differences in the 194 different members there are of Interpol? It's really important. You know, having been a former director at Interpol as well, you know, I know the, the opportunity that this institution has in bringing together countries at different levels of evolution in their understanding and use of technologies 
And so it's important that they're guided to bring about their application in a more sensible, pragmatic, lawful and proportionate way. But at the same time, you know, re encourage those that are the pathfinders in the use of this technology that they're using it in an appropriate way so it doesn't hinder those that are coming behind because what we don't want is, for example, a, a pause in the digital transformation that's taking place because of inappropriate deployment or use of it, um, which is going to hinder you know, a more sophisticated global security architecture of interoperability and integration. And that's important when we look at the globalization that's taking place in the mobility of um, both the citizen, but also the mobility of crime and terror. We've got to make sure that we're putting appropriate protection and identification systems in place of which technology has a part to play in that. Now, I know tech can do this, but do you think the time has come where everyone will move around um, internationally with a biometric identity tag? Uh, you know, is this something that would be useful in the war against terror? Uh, is it something that would be useful in the, the massive refugee movement that we've seen over the past few years up in through Europe through the, because of the horrific wars in Syria and Iraq? Um, you know, is it an, an inevitability to get to that level of biometric identity? Well, I think first of all there is a, a requirement for having identity that you can trust. And the current mechanisms that we've had from that from the past question whether you can have complete confidence in those. And what do we mean by that? It's an identity based on a paper identification document, be it a passport, a birth record or whatever the case may be. And they've been you know, uh, vulnerable to, to corrupt practices, counterfeiting and other stuff. So biometrics, as an example, brings a, a new enhanced level of security to identity. It also then enables, if you're using biometrics within that trusted identity, an opportunity to use sophisticated technologies to allow us to cope with volume and dealing with volume but with accuracy and identification. So you're seeing now with a number of, of surveys and audits and, uh, and people um, pressure that there is a, a desire now for others to be, you know, or for an adoption of uh, contactless identification with the use of facial recognition as an example in controlled settings like border control points, airports, land borders and sea borders. Um, so I think there's, there's going to be a continued um, transition for that to becoming more routine. What's helpful from that is that first of all it allows law enforcement community to receive data in advance because those processes by design generate data in advance so it allows law enforcement to be more informed and uh, gives them the opportunity for enhanced vetting practices to allow people to be facilitated through those channels. Um, and also as well it, you know, it enhances the, the identity um, within that activity as well so that you, you're not just looking at a face there may be other biometrics that are attractive within it and importantly it makes those regulated um, border channels far more difficult for exploitation for criminals and terrorists because they can only pass through them with those enhanced identities and they have to be checked and approved and the systems as well by default as, um, provide an opportunity for designing out maybe some of the corrupt practices of border officials in the past, which could allow people through, be it a criminal or a terrorist, for whatever purpose, because they could. The computer systems generally can't be 
you know, abused in that way. It, it, it's also, as, as an ex-intelligence officer, it, it, it's also disabling one of the oldest um, professions. Uh, it makes it very difficult for intelligence um, agents to infiltrate different countries under different identities, um, which is one of the problems that's coming with this sort of biometric technology that's there. Um, however, if I, if I lose my passport, I can get it cancelled, I get a new passport, new passport number, and it's very easy. If I lose my biometric identity, which is held in ones and noughts, and we can see how easy our systems are hacked, uh, is that not a huge risk? Well, the, the, naturally, wherever data is held, there is always a propensity, an opportunity, or a likelihood of it being stolen. Um, but the governments themselves, which are you know, the, the sovereign owners of your identity in the current model, are going to great ends to make sure that the data is held in a very trustworthy state, it's encrypted, there are a whole other level of, of uh, sophisticated uh, protections that we can put on place with that. And also as well as there is a piece of work that many are looking at which is then trying to make sure that should your biometric identity be stolen and be attributed to a different identity, that there is the opportunity for that then to be reversed and you know to, to be repatriated with its lawful and legitimate you know identity owner. Mick, on repatriation, I think that's a good way to say thank you very much indeed for talking. It's been a real pleasure. Good. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Cheers. Take care.